Hello and welcome to the Digital Works podcast, the podcast about digital stuff in the cultural sector. My name's Ash and in today's episode we catch up with Stuart Buchanan. Stuart is head of screen at the Sydney Opera House and we talk about his new job title, the difference between digital content focused on promotion and marketing and that focused on digital artistic content experiences, the importance of differentiation between cultural digital experiences and those offered by the big streaming and content platforms, the increasingly hybrid nature of his work and thinking, international collaborations, and lots more. And if you can hear a slight squeaking noise, that's Stuart's chair. Enjoy. Hello again, Stuart. Hi. Hi. It has been a minute. I mean, I don't know how many minutes there are in two years, but it has been two years worth of minutes. Wow. Yeah, as we were just saying, time has sort of collapsed, I think, over the past few years. And it, those two years have just gone by in a flash. But I'm excited to talk to you again, because when we spoke last time, you were coming out of a period where you had, in your words, just implemented a two to three year strategy in two to three months. Mm. You know, that had... <laughs> given you the opportunity to experiment a lot i get the sense from our conversation you know you'd you'd formed a new team around that you just launched stream which is is it fair to call it your sort of digital stage yeah our streaming platform streaming platform is a is a less (laughs) wanky way of describing it (laughs) call it what you like that's fine (laughs) and you know i think it was interesting We, we spoke at that point about the fact that Stream was sort of supporting strategies at the Opera House around shifting perceptions of the house and around reaching new audiences. And you had been very successful, I think, in both of those measures. You know, you'd reached a lot of new audience, you'd reached a lot of younger audience. Mm. And Stream still very much exists. You know, that's one of the exciting things from my perspective is that so many of the digital initiatives, which maybe survived the pandemic just have now, a couple of years on, started hmm. to fall into disrepair, I think. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's really exciting that Stream isn't one of those. And also, I noticed when we were chatting on email prior to today, your job title has changed. You used to be head of digital programming, and you're now head of screen, <laughs> which is an interesting shift. And maybe that's where I want to start. Sure. Love what it. does that shift in job title mean what does that sort of denote in Mm. what is that telling people external to the opera house what does it tell us about the conversations you've been having around your area of work yeah that's a really good question and it is a good place to start because it does then you know potentially leap often into lots of different trajectories i think there's probably like a multifaceted answer you know i'd love to give you a simple one let's start with one which is really pragmatic i suppose and then we'll talk about one that's a little more conceptual so the kind of pragmatic one is such that, you know, the notion of programming within digital for a lot of people was just simply hard to grasp because, you know, even the nature, you know, even the nature of this podcast or the, or, or the kind of nature of the way that we utilize that naming convention of digital, particularly within the arts, has very specific connotations that I think were obviously initially drive through marketing, but not exclusively so. But, you know, when we think of digital in an arts context, yes, it could be marketing, it could be infrastructure, it could be website, it could be software, it could be network, it could be a whole bunch of different things. And then when you put programming at the end of that, that sort of adds an extra layer of confusion. And like legitimately add people who, who sort of put two and two together and got five who would say, you're digital and you do programming, does that mean you code websites, right? Because because the word programming, of course, is also kind of part of that. So one of the first things we wanted to do is to kind of clarify what is digital programming. Because I would I would say probably anytime we introduced or any member of the team introduced themselves outside of the organization, I would say at least in 50% of occasions, if not more, the first question would be asked, what is digital programming? And so that was clearly a little bit of a barrier. Now it was never it was a, it was never a phrase we used in market. It was always just you know industry facing, right? I think internally there was a useful differentiation to be made between the team who are responsible for digital marketing, and within that includes, I guess, this is something we can we can perhaps touch on later. You know, 
in parallel to the work that I've been doing, the digital marketing team have developed a new content strategy. So there's an increase in promotional content being made that is still people running around the building with cameras. They'll look a little bit like our people running around the building with cameras. So, so there was a kind of need to differentiate between what do we mean by, you know, digital in the context of, of marketing and promotion and content versus what we do, which is in artistic programming. So that was a kind of pragmatic rationale for it. But the other, I guess, something that's a little more conceptual was, was to acknowledge that time has moved on and we are in a new paradigm. And a change of name like that does signal that things are moving, does signal that there is some kind of development or innovation occurring. And as we'll get into in a second, our work has kind of bled out of, for want of a better phrase, the online world. And we're now developing projects that are stage-based, which may or may not be recorded and may not be streamed, but are still screen-based, you know, so there's all sorts of different ways we can consider that, whether it's things like a motion capture performance with a large screen in a venue, or it could simply be the screening of a film, or in some way that a screen is integrated or technology is, is integrated in some way. So it was also to, to kind of denote that there had been a movement away from your traditional, the filming of things, to a, a more kind of considered artistic development of the team as well. And, you know, it's not that screen is the best name you know because there was a i don't actually recall there was a long list of options but we did um an air about screen but we didn't know there was a couple of other organizations that we knew of who had also had a staff position that was screen whether that was producer of screen or head of screen there weren't film festivals these were performing arts events and organizations or arts events and organizations so that kind of felt like well that is maybe there's a slight lead that the industry might be taking there so let's go with that Yeah, it's interesting. I've had a few conversations recently where the question has been asked, you know, how useful now, especially in more senior roles is, or or sort of departmental titles, is the word digital because it has become so broad as to be almost meaningless. And you ask five, five different people, it means five different things. Completely. And that's the other side of it. I mean, it's just so part and parcel of getting up in the morning, leaving the house and, you know, going about your day, you know, so many so-called digital touch points within that. But also, you know, I think this is something that um, we've talked about. I mean, I, I, it was a great interview you did recently with Seb Chan from Acme here in Australia, who talked about the CEO mentoring program that I'm one of the mentors for. And throughout those discussions, there was definitely that kind of sense that, you know, once we eradicate digital from language, rather, when, when digital becomes part and parcel of an organization or leads an organization, you can eradicate it from language. When you eradicate it from language, you sort of cease to put it over to one side. It's just it's just entirely their part of it. So, you know, dare we say post-digital? I don't know if that's something you want to hang a hat on, but, uh, but essentially, you know, organizations who can now sort of consider themselves to be post-digital in a language sense, I think of those that are sort of saying, yep, we've fully integrated and we're now into the next phase or the, or the, or the next chapter. But there's a, there might be a necessity to retain digital if you're still in that transitional phase, if you like. 100%. And I always use my 100-year-old example of, you know, most corporations used to have a head of electricity you know, and... <laughs> You know, it's just a tool or a, a thing that is powering the workers used to make things happen. And I'm certainly starting to see that in some organizations. It's interesting you reference the conversation I had with Seb. You know, you're also in Australia. There does seem to be something around conversations I have with Australian institutions where they, some of them, are seemingly more mature around how digital is thought about and talked about i don't know if that relates to on the ground realities but certainly you know seb was chief experience officer you know you are head of screen these are far more specific and i think useful ways of talking about your two very very different skill sets and areas of focus than you know director of digital yeah, I mean, there is a little bit of a sense that we are detached and on, on the other side of the world. And you know, the, these sort of things help us to, you know, feel a sense of a greater sense of position or pride in terms of uh, on, a, on a global scale. But it's also a smaller, obviously a much smaller industry, you know, where there's a, where, you know, discussions like this do happen frequently, you know, and because of that, you kind of lose some of that inertia that comes when conversations are more displaced, you know, or, or happen across, you know, greater, you know, kind of uh, not just geography, but, but time zones. So at least here, I think we have that sort of advantage where everybody is intrigued and, in, and interested and the conversation continues apace, which is great. 
And I want to focus in now on your area of focus, in contrast to some of the others we've touched on, is a programming focus. You know, it is a commissioning, it is an artistic focus. We spoke last time about the fact that a lot of the work you were commissioning was, to use the language of some of the people that had complained about it to you, a bit weird, and that that was something (laughs) that you were intentionally pursuing. And it feels like you're still doing a lot of work with new and emerging artists, artists that perhaps haven't worked with the Opera House before. There's the Outlines 2023 Performance Reimagined Strand that's available on stream, available for free if people want to go check that out, which feels very, I suppose, forward-facing. You know, It's more exploratory, perhaps, than some of the other yes. stuff that's on stream. But also it feels like since we last spoke, and this is, I imagine, by virtue of the fact the Opera House has been open and there's been lots of stuff happening, there's a lot now, a lot more, it feels, of um, sort of live performance yeah. footage. And have you had to rebalance your programming focus to deal with the fact that you have this giant engine of live mm. performance happening in the background, i.e. the Sydney Opera House, that you could and should be making use of alongside the work that you're doing with more innovative, perhaps, artists yeah. and forms? Well, I think, I mean, first off, in terms of balance, it's certainly three areas of focus, which broadly would be recording and broadcast commissions and, let's say, community and schools. And we can we can sort of talk about those individually. Talk about recording and broadcast because it's probably the one that, and the reason we call it recording and broadcast, that's a definition that's been in the house for 12 years and it's very hard for all of us to change that language because it's not even recording and broadcast because the things aren't broadcast. Recording and streaming, let's say, or recording and distribution. That work continues apace and some great development there is that as part of a kind of post-COVID response, but also just a a part of a kind of acknowledgement of where recording and distribution sits within the organisation, that was lucky enough to receive a substantial investment that allowed us to upgrade our infrastructure. Now, a lot of the the infrastructure was quite old and so we had to initially kind of front end that with with a lot of replacements but we're now at the part where we start to upscale long and short of that is we now shoot in 4k which is terrific and we pretty much shoot everything in 4k unless it's something that is i would say kind of you know very kind of deprioritized maybe like a sort of the ceo's address or something you know so that doesn't that doesn't require a kind of 4k shoot so you know we're probably shooting anywhere from five to seven cameras in 4k when we do that but that's important to know that that infrastructure was purchased by the house, which means the cost of us then using that on a show-by-show basis is is actually pretty cost-effective. We've also brought a lot of the post-production management, not completely in-house, but a lot of that has come in-house as well. Again, cost efficiencies and time efficiencies. All that said, it's still true that I I think when I I ran the numbers at the end of the last financial year, probably about three-quarters of the people, as in artists and companies, that we put a request to film say no. You know, so we are somewhat sort of naturally tempered in our ambition by the folks who are willing to for their show to be filmed. Now, you know, I don't need to explain what all those lists of reasons are as to why somebody wouldn't want the work to be filmed. We understand that, you know, within live performance. But of course, now that we have this catalogue of work on stream that's increasingly more beautiful to watch because of the 4K upscale, is that if people are on the fence about being recorded, once they see the work, they'll, they'll sort of generally agree. I think, I think, you know, there is that natural hesitation as what's this going to look like, you know, once they actually see the work. That tends to get folks over the line. But yeah, so there's still, you know, there's still a reluctance which is nothing to do with the model. It's nothing to do with the financing. It's simply that the work is not there to be filmed. You know, the work is there to put in front of a live audience and, and not to be captured. That's, that is, you know, as I say, in, in the minds of the artists, the companies. The other thing is, of course, that we still, and I'm not sure exactly how what the case is in, in the UK because I haven't sort of looked into it for 12 months or so, you know, but we still do not have enterprise agreements with the unionised companies in terms of rates for recording and streaming, which means that every single recording, particularly those that have to be done with companies as opposed to individual artists, need to be negotiated on a case-by-case basis and they can be very, they can take a very long time, it can be very fraught, it can be very expensive. So essentially what we do there is we sort of, we understand that and know that and therefore ensure that let's say maybe in a 12 month period, there might be one or two of those, but that is then tempered by your more kind of standard agreements, which is more kind of contemporary music and talks and and maybe kind of more independent practitioners. 
I was going to say just on that point of sort of rights and licensing, because again, that feels a little bit like the elephant in the room that's stopping mm, a, good one. a lot of, uh, um, <laughs> not stopping progress, but it's, it's making it slower because everyone perhaps has a divergent perspective on how that might exist. Have you found over the time that you've been having these conversations, as you've got this sort of growing body of practice to point to, have those conversations become easier, not easier, because you've got, yeah. you've got a, you know, more got experience, precedent. I suppose. Yes. Yeah. And you've, you've got contractual precedent. And that's the most important thing, because in the absence of an enterprise agreement, or at least a kind of industry standard, we have our own precedence in the contracts that we've been you know, developing independently of an industry solution. Now, of course, they will vary, but we're able to find a through line. And so when a company on ours comes to us and says, well, we think you should pay us X, we can be able to say, well, here's three comparative you know, recordings or companies or artists or, or works. This is what we pay them. This is what we'd be looking. We'd be looking at something closer to this. There is a an agreement in place that Live Performance Australia did develop for COVID. And by their own admission, that has not developed over the last three years. However, it's still used as a benchmark because it's the only benchmark. And it's still kind of helpful within that to be able to say, you know, there's X number of people in the cast and creatives times dollar value and, and arrive at a fairly big number. And at least that's consistent. And even if we can't always afford to do it, at least there's consistency there. So like I say, we can say, well, we know we can't afford to do, let's say, three in this particular quarter, but we can pretty much guarantee if we approach X that the fee for that will be Y. You know, it's it's not kind of out of the blue. Now, that doesn't stop the kind of crazy, you know, kind of responses that we get from time to time, which is usually one agent, you know, not say a specific agent, but it's normally an agent who's saying, my artist needs to be paid X. And you're like, well, that's just absurd, you know, by anyone's standards. You know, so there is still those outliers that still come in and think that, you know, one should be, that we're Netflix, you know, or that we're the BBC. And it's like, no, we're still just an arts organisation. And so, you know, in those cases, well, that's fine. We just don't record those, you know, with those. And hopefully in time, that will change. But yeah, there are enough outliers to make it irritating, but I think the consensus is building now as to what's fair and reasonable. And actually in this current season that, that we're running and with some recordings that are coming up in the next few months, they have probably been a little more expensive than we've done in the past. But when we actually break down the budget and look at what those fees represent, it's very fair. And, you know, we're obviously conscious when you look at things like the writer strike and the, and the, and the actor strike in terms of ensuring fair remuneration uh, within a kind of stream, streaming context. And even though we're worlds apart from that, I'm still very conscious that um, we need to do right by everyone who's involved in this. So cut a long story short, or in summary, we're, we're, we're getting to a point where we have a good sense of what is fair and reasonable, irrespective of the scale of a production. So that's kind of, I think, where we're at now. And I suppose away from the recording and broadcast strand of, of what you're doing, we look a bit for a moment at the commissions strand. Mm. And when we spoke last time, it seemed you were very clear on that the purpose of that was, or one of the purposes of that strand was to enable you to work with artists that the opera house may not otherwise be able to justify from a sort of commercials point of view or a, you know operational uplift point of view. Is that still the predominant focus of the commission strand is to work with artists you might not otherwise work with at the Opera House, new artists to help artists get in front of audiences they may otherwise have to spend a long time building up to? Certainly. It's certainly part of it, yes. I guess the, the kind of slight extension of that is is the acknowledgement that most of those artists don't confine themselves to a particular area of practice. They're usually interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary. And so therefore, when you have more genre-based programming, you know, more traditional institutional genre-based programming, it's very hard to find the space, you know. So it may well be that they're not necessarily early career. It may just be that their practice is such that there's no other way for that to kind of find its way into through the pores of the walls of the opera house. So there's there's something about being able to bring artists in earlier, because as you say, you know, we don't quite have the same financial constraints or impediments. We can happy to talk about that. But also the nature of the practice is shifting and changing and such that so much of it is now screen based and not just exclusively screen based, but perhaps integrated into live performance as well. 
I guess that thread is where we start to pull a little stronger, which is about the application of technology within a performance environment and not just to enhance a performance, not just to kind of go, oh, no, the screen can be bigger. It's like, how does how does technology fundamentally change the nature of the work? You know, and two, I guess, two recent projects that can talk to that is, you know, one of which was a motion capture performance. And motion capture is obviously in, within a live context has been, you know, been around for a little while. We sort of took it to the next stage, if you like, by having one dancer in Sydney and one dancer in Hong Kong and having them perform together, if you like, in, in, in real time. But the avatars that were being rendered through their motion capture were performing together on screen. So they kind of met, if you like, within the virtual world. I've tried, I tried so many times with marketing, with comms, with our team, not to use the phrase virtual world. And we, we, we didn't get there, clearly. I still use it, you know, five pounds to the person who can give us a good alternative. So that was interesting because then that sort of really talked to how performance can be you know, geographically removed or remote and can still perform together. And for there still to be an outcome that is live, that audiences in different places around the world can all watch simultaneously and get a slightly different experience, although a shared experience nonetheless. That was really fascinating. And then that also talks to, I mean, there's a strand we won't go into, but that also talks to you know, an impact on a touring model, let's say, you know, because essentially what the artist who was, in this case, Lu Yang, what Lu Yang brought to the table was the design and the avatars and, you know, commissioned or kind of helped to produce the technology that could then could be lifted and shifted to essentially anywhere for a local dancer to strap in and deliver the same performance without Lu Yang having to travel and without even a kind of production needing to travel. So that was that was kind of interesting. The other one which we did in July, we've got a, we've got another project coming up very soon on similar, which was the application of artificial intelligence within a live performance environment. You know, like there's so much discourse about you know AI and creativity, but that tends to be in like a desktop environment when you're in the act of producing. And what I wanted to tease out was, well, let's take that logically forward. How can performers use that to change? their live show. So I commissioned a creative technologist and two musicians to do anyway and thought about that for a long time and came back and, and uh, did a performance which you can see on stream called Sonic Mutations. And it was fascinating because essentially, ultimately, you know, I don't want to be too reductive about it, but even just sort of looking at what they had done, they're really kind of thinking of the artificial intelligence tool that had been developed as part of the project. It's sort of another it's another digital audio workstation that's sort of sitting adjacent to Ableton doing things in, in a way that are you know, very fascinating and, and unique in a kind of AI sense. But nonetheless, the artists had total agency as to how and when to incorporate that into their show. So it added this, this brilliant kind of sweet spot between the kind of agency and control and total kind of randomness that you know was being generated through that generative tool. There's two examples of thinking about so-called digital or screen within a live performance environment and the impact it's having on the way people make work and the way people present work and therefore the way audiences experience work. So that's where the kind of commissioning bit sits, I think. And I think that's so exciting because when you say screen, you could think about, you know, essentially delivery of work onto screens for remote audiences you know onto a laptop onto a mobile phone whatever or you could think about delivery of technology enabled in-person experiences you know big screens immersive things vr whatever it might be but i think what's exciting in the work you just described is you're also looking at the space between those two things you know where one can influence the other and, and vice versa and i do think that is the exciting opportunity going forward for certain art forms, certain artists, certain organizations mm. is working out how these things can be combined to create something totally new and being able to service different audience experiences in slightly different ways from the same mm. thing, as it were. And I think That's the, right. the dance example particularly is super exciting. Yeah. And I think when you put that together with what we just talked about in terms of those artists who are, you know, dancing around genre who are interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, who are thinking already in their practice, thinking outside the box, who may be early career or emergent. When you put 
those two things together, you got something really exciting because it isn't the, you know, established diet in the wool artist who has a very clear sense of their own practice that is coming to these projects. It is, you know, artists who are still, I mean, you know, that's not to say that experimentation dies the older you get, but, you, but, you, but your practice becomes more refined, I think, whereas it's a little more chaotic, you know, and a little more punk, perhaps, you know, at, at the kind of early stages of your career. You know, we may have even referenced it on the last interview we had because it's the it's the um, example that I reference all the time. And it actually came from Claire L. Evans, who was part of our outline season, which you can watch now on stream. I'm going to just 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 edit that and put watch now on stream on throughout throughout the interview. Who you know who, who, who essentially noted that when the drum machine was first invented, that the drummers were up in arms and they took out you know ads and NME and said uh, you know death the drum machine. This is this is the end of blah 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 blah. And actually what happened was a bunch of punk artists got a hold of the drum machine and invented electronic music. That's what I want to bring into the commission series is to actually, you know, how do we bring artists who have that kind of riotous sensibility to give them or help them have access to the technology or to ways of working and ways of thinking that, that perhaps they can't, they don't otherwise have the privilege to do so, you know. So can we use the Opera House to basically be that conjunction or to prize open doors that otherwise they can't open or that, you know, those doors are only reserved for you know, older, more established, you know, more traditional, more Western even artists. And so how do we sort of, how can we pervert that? And that feels like a very kind of, you know, I'm happy with that approach. For me, that feels really logical because what it gives us is actually really exciting artistic outcomes that deviate from the expectations of what the house should do, which is, you know, one of the purposes for that strand. And just on on that question of making interesting new opportunities available to these sorts of interdisciplinary artists. You know, you mentioned earlier that you had a big investment that enabled you to upgrade some of your recording and broadcast equipment. But a lot of the things that you just talked about around AI, around software development, around sort of generation of visuals, they require powerful and new technologies. Have you explored new partnerships with technology providers with other institutions in order to more easily make those opportunities available to artists you might be working with yes we've certainly explored and have you know engendered a number of of good partnerships but that said i am also very focused in ensuring that whatever technology we use there is at least the possibility that a wide cohort of artists can access it. So for example, when we did the motion capture work, it's about understanding that, well, there's about four different manufacturers of motion capture gear that are out there and the most expensive is like a hundred grand a suit in terms of Australian dollar terms, whereas the cheapest is like 4,000. So let's use the $4,000 one. And so that when another artist comes along and says, I want to do it, say, well, you could probably get a grant for 4,000. You're unlikely to get a grant for 100,000. The AI project that I just mentioned, we paid for the creative technologists and the artists to make the software themselves. So they went off and basically hacked together this AI tool rather than using an established model that was out there. And that was really exciting because, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a massive amount of money, but it was enough to allow them to hack something together for the purpose of this commission. But that now has long-lasting ramifications where they're actually now saying, actually, this could be used within you know the independent uh, music community in really interesting ways. So they're sort of now off thinking about that. So it's worth noting that it's you know we're very much looking at projects that don't require very, very expensive investment and infrastructure. Because that for me, that kind of defeats the purpose a little bit. And actually, you know, like, and this is my favorite tub to thump, which is why we don't really do VR, you know, because in order to experience the VR, you either need to come to a venue and have a very weird experience of sharing a headset and standing in a queue while you do that, or you need to have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars available to buy that headset. And until that's more readily available, to me, that doesn't seem like a very opportune or fertile space to develop work if it means that the number of people who can engage with it is drastically reduced because of the cost of access. A couple of great partnerships. We you know, There's another 
artificial intelligence project we're working on that was a partnership with uh, the University of New South Wales, um, local university who has got a sort of creative AI ambit, and that was really exciting. We did another project last year, it could take too long to describe, but a, a, a generative artwork piece where the artwork was generated through voice, and that was a beautiful project, and that was done in collaboration with Google Creative Lab. But these aren't massive scale projects, you know, they're fairly, I think, even-handed in terms of the scale of them. So they're kind of, you know, we still, I guess you could look at it with a bit of a 90s or a 2000 lens and still think of that kind of like skunk works idea. It's still very, it's a little bit, we're not calling it a lab, we're not calling it skunk works, but there is still that kind of commission a project with uh, having a reasonable idea of where it's going to go, but knowing that it is just whatever the outcome, that outcome is just the next step in a very long trajectory for that type of work. And it may not be fully realized and it may be a bit shaggy around the edges, but more power to it. And I think that's an admirable approach. You know, you work in one of the best resourced cultural institutions, certainly in, in Australia. And I think to be keeping that as one of your principles is exciting. And, you know, for people listening to this, if you want to get a sense of why Stuart has this perspective, go back to our last chat and you'll hear him <laughs> talking about organizing raves and fields and, and working on zines and that sort of thing. But I think it's admirable that that sort of DIY, and you know, you've said the word punk a lot, but that sort of ethos still mm. seems to be really informing your perspective mm. now as a, in a sort of leadership role in an institution. Yeah. There's also a super pragmatic rationale for that too, which is that by keeping the costs down, we can do more. It's that simple. You know, why invest $100,000 in a project that has one outcome for me that could maybe be spread across three or four different projects that are smaller in scale, but that arguably could be even more interesting. So that's the other part of it as well, is ensuring that we get a good range of work by keeping the scale in check. Yeah, and I think we've seen some of that you know, the National Gallery here in the UK last year did a bunch of micro commissions to, it seems, sort of seed the field, as it were. And mm. that is perhaps, at the moment we're in, going to be the most fruitful approach for commissioning organisations mm. rather than saving all of their pennies for the once every two years big bang thing mm. that, you know, you can't guarantee with any of these things they're going to be a success. Yeah. And the last bit I'll say about that is I have been very inspired by the work that the Serpentine has been doing within future art ecosystems. In particular, the kind of idea of you know, where an institution sits within its local or at least national arts ecology. And I'm very mindful of where the Opera House sits and what its purpose can be within within that ecology. And, you know, it's as much about being able to give a voice or give a stage to, you know, by elevating work as it is to, through projects like this, I think, be able to kind of permeate back again, to be able to say, all right, well, we've developed this and we've done this kind of, you know, quasi-research project that delivers this AI tool, and now this AI tool can go back into the ecosystem as something for independent artists, local independent artists to start playing with. So I'm kind of mindful of, of that two-way dialogue and exchange, because otherwise, you know, the house then just becomes a kind of a rarefied stage to elevate art to, without that then necessarily ricocheting back again. And in the last sort of 10, 15 minutes of our, our chat, I really want to talk about value and sort of, I suppose, not how you justify your existence, but how do you talk to <laughs> colleagues about, you know, in the Opera House and stakeholders outside the Opera House, potential commercial partners, about the value of the work that you do, or how is that work seen to be valuable i know recently yeah. that deloitte have done a valuation report on the work of the opera house and that has looked at the work of stream as well i believe yeah because it does feel in conversations i'm having with people working in organizations where there are sort of meaningful digital programs is actually people are being surprised by what they're realizing about the value of those programs. You know, we've talked about audience reach in other conversations on this podcast. I've talked about accessibility. You know, we've talked about the surprising potential commercial value of some education programs, you know, that absolutely you, you deliver for free to your core audiences, but internationally, there may be a paid audience for that. Mm. And I'm just wondering about, obviously, Stream has a, a revenue generating strand to it. You know, you can buy a subscription. But I imagine it's not purely on the sort of commercials that you're talking about the success of this. Yeah. 
Well, interesting you say that because there are some residual programs available on stream to rent, but that is essentially phased out. So I think this is, you know, this is really important to get on record is that the initial hope, I wouldn't say expectation, but the initial hope that stream would at least wash its own face to some extent by driving revenue has largely not proven to have eventuated. Now, that's not to say that there's no revenue. Where we see revenue opportunities and, and they continue to be successful is in the live streaming of events that are ticketed. So, you know, the essentially the in-room ticket versus the digital ticket. Any other opportunity to monetize has proven to be largely unsuccessful. And to that end, essentially the strategy now is if there are opportunities for a ticketed live stream, and generally those opportunities are things that have already sold out or are like are a high demand, let's say, for want of a better word. If there are opportunities for ticketed live streams, we'll explore those. But otherwise, everything that we're recording, and these are full-length performances, they're not five minutes, full-length performances are available free. Now, you know, I know that that can be contentious because, you know, there are a lot of people struggling to monetize this type of work. But I also kind of, you know, take a little bit of a view of, you know, we're a large, well-funded arts institution that in many respects is just like our national broadcaster, the ABC or the BBC equivalent, and therefore it's incumbent upon us, given that we're entirely driven, or no, you know, the, the money that we receive from government is entirely driven from taxes that we get back. So, you know, there's very much a sense from the top down, from the CEO down, that let's use Stream to be a vehicle to attract as many audiences as possible or to, you know, encourage repeat attendance within existing audiences and by making stream free that is part of that ambit so when you take it out of a kind of revenue driver lane and put it into you know audience development or even public good and that's a phrase we use quite a lot then it becomes something quite different then you cease to worry about whether or not it's driving revenue because the sole purpose of it or the large part of the purpose of it is to develop audiences and to stimulate public good. So that's kind of where we're sitting right now. You know, we will, like I say, continue to be opportunistic where we can, but the majority of content on stream is now free. And I guess the other thing is that we have also pivoted towards trying to do as many long-form performances as possible. In the olden days, it was about recording bits of a show. Not really interested in that. You're either recording a show or you're not recording a show. You're doing the whole thing. So yeah, so there's the, there is more content on stream, and there's more longer full shows on stream. There's more theater. There's you know there's musicals. There's a the genres have expanded quite a bit over the last couple of years. So as a kind of slight kind of um, jump off from that, the Deloitte report that you mentioned, this is a report that they've done now three times, and it was done initially ten years ago just as we're about to start what we refer to as our decade of renewal. But basically, we spent 10 years entirely redeveloping all the venues inside the house, bringing them up to modern standards. And a lot of them hadn't had any work done on them since it opened in 1973. So a lot of that was equipment you know, beyond end of life, et cetera, et cetera. So as we started that process, we did an initial valuation of the Opera House so we could at least, as we, when we get to the end of that process, have a bit of understanding of where we got to. But there's two things I think that are of interest to the people listening to the podcast that in terms of valuing digital. One of which is at a very specific level that the Deloitte report highlighted was that there is a value to our time, right? And I think when this was done locally, and I think it's done through transport, so it basically says that, you know, the value of your travel time on an hourly basis, and it's something around $20 an hour. So you are worth $20 an hour. <laughs> and so you could basically extrapolate that to say, how many hours of content were consumed times $20 an hour gives you literal digital cash dollar value because that is somebody's time. You know, if our time is worth that much and that is what we are then we're giving our time to watch programs that are being produced by the Opera House, then there's a very straightforward little piece of arithmetic there. So under that calculation, the digital value the last financial year was about $23 million. So straight away, you can go, well, you know, investment of X thousand dollars, digital value, $23 million. But that's not the end of the story because where Deloitte's take it is, is into the kind of stratosphere when they start talking about social value. And I hadn't really come across social value before. I don't really sort of operate too much in this sort of, um, you know, 
policy space to have come across that before. But essentially, social value goes beyond, obviously, your material value of the land and the buildings and essentially the the asset value and starts to talk about what is it worth to the public. And obviously, when you think about the Opera House, it is such a beloved and iconic institution. If I've got 60 seconds, I'll tell you a little anecdote that one of the folks in Deloitte told us is they took like something like 20 or 25 quintessentially Australian things, right? And sort of measured them in terms of on an axis of kind of importance to Australia and how much you love them. Right. So if you think about those as, as, as the two axes and you put lots and lots of different things in there, you put in Vegemite, you know, or, or the equivalent of Marmite, or, you know, they'll put in Uluru, which is the beautiful giant rock at the heart of the nation. Uh, they put in Bondi Beach, you put in lots of other things. And when you look at that axis, there were three things right out in the top, which is very important, and much loved. They were basically referred to as being in a class of their own because they're so so completely removed from from all the other things that, that were kind of the point. And those three things, and this is according to the you know the general public of Australia, the three most valued things were koalas and kangaroos and the Sydney Opera House. And so when you're in that world, it's like it is, I mean, I, I don't use the word stratospheric stratospheric lightly. It it is something completely that cannot be yeah, there's something about that that doesn't afford reasonable comparison to a lot of other things because you because you're you're looking at it through a lens that is so distorted and so or so unique so i say all that to kind of put a little bit of a sort of caveat around some of the some of the other things that the report mentioned but essentially when you look at the social value of the opera house um so you know all the things what's the value of the house to australians and you don't have to be a member of the audience to consider the opera house to be valuable you might never have been to the opera house and still consider it to be valued, but the social value was just over $11 billion, which was huge. But within that, and this was the bit that both excited and terrified me in some respects, is that out of that $11 billion in social value, the digital component was $500 million. And that was pretty staggering insofar as it's, it's, it's essentially saying that I can't quite do the math, but there's a, you know, there's a large percentage of the social value of the opera house that is derived from digital. And the last number that was that was um, both terrifying and, and validating was that that number has increased by 400% over the last 10 years. So there's a lot of, I mean, it sounds like a crazy sort of insane number, but I like to be able to think about, irrespective of what size the number is, that if you can, if you're able to say, if you're able to somehow quantify the social value of whatever it is that you're doing, and also be able to then say, well, what is digital's part to play within that, you know? So yeah, that's that's a very top level kind of reading of that report. But if you're in, if anyone's interested in kind of working out what do you mean by social value, how did you get to those crazy numbers, to have a look at the report, there's a great section, you know, a very detailed section about digital within that that goes into it. You know, yeah, a lot more nuance. Yeah, and if I can, I'll put a link to the report in the the notes for this episode. But I think what's perhaps important as well to note is the last time we spoke, you did say very clearly that when you joined the Opera House, sort of what was it, four years ago, you weren't starting from scratch. You know, there was a trajectory, an upwards trajectory, an investment in digital, buy-in from leadership, a sort of understanding shared to a greater or lesser extent across the institution that this was or could be more than, in inverted commas, just marketing and more than sort of, in inverted commas, just revenue generating. Yes. And I think that is important context as well to be mindful of. Yeah. And maybe just to kind of riff off of that, one of the longest endeavours at the house as far as digital or, or screen is concerned is our schools programme which has now been sort of delivering workshops and tours and I can talk about can we, you know, we don't really have time to go into that in detail please have a look at the website but essentially there's been delivering two schools for best part of 12 or 13 years and what's interesting there is that you know that's interactive so it's two-way a lot of the work Although last year, you know, we got a lot of feedback from teachers saying we love the two-way, but, you know, it just doesn't quite sync with our timetable. So now we've got as much kind of on-demand material as we do live and interactive. Although that on-demand material is sort of designed in a way that, that encourages kind of pausing and participating as you go. Um, in the last year, we reached 300,000 school kids through that digital program, which is a phenomenal number. And so when you then think about, you know, somebody when you're 
coming off that discussion about what is the value of digital and the social value of digital particularly, and they say, well, part of what digital does is reach 300,000 school kids every year. And to them, you know, taking work that broadly sits within, you know, the STEM or STEAM categories and introducing them to, you know, kind of art and concepts and ideas and, and artists that they just wouldn't have access to, you know. So that's getting into remote areas, regional areas. This is, you know, that that we're really, as far as the strategy goes, pushing outside of the metropolitan areas and, um, you know, delivering work there. So we're really proud of that whole area of endeavour. It's really, it's vital to what we do and it's vital to how the organisation organization sees digital as part of the mix because of what it does there. I mean, we've talked about so many different types of digital work here, you know, everything from, I suppose, easily understood capture of live performance, all the way through to, you know, AI assisted work that's delivered to in-person and remote audiences. From your perspective as a programmer, as a commissioner, are there principles or elements or ways of thinking that are always or commonly present in the more successful digital projects that you're working with or are they all outliers i'm just trying to get a sense of a framework people might be able to pick up yeah well you know maybe it's not that surprising but if you're talking about you know a cohort of artists that are the younger end of the spectrum you know who as we said are largely genreless but they are also digital natives and so I think one of the kind of strands that runs through all the projects is that, you know, technology or digital screen is inherent from the conception of the idea and the idea could not be achieved or executed without it rather than let's do a crazy version of Macbeth with TVs, you know, like it's, 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 this work cannot be realized without, you know, and so that's, I think that's probably intrinsic in that you couldn't see this work in the absence of, that through line of technology or digital. But I love that kind of agnosticism, though, because it's not to say that every artist we're working with works with technology all the time. You know, a lot of the artists that we have discussions with say, yeah, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. And it's more, maybe more traditional. I'm doing an installation or I'm doing a performance or doing whatever. But I do have this idea for X, and that's when, you know, that's when it comes into it. So it isn't a given that it's technology all the time. But if, you know, there is an idea of which digital is there at its conception. That's the thread that we want to pull on. Last two questions. We will finish, although I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> so, you know, as, as I was saying to you, I think before we hit record, the Opera House is quite mature in its digital thinking, particularly around digital programming, I think. Even in the, the couple of years since we've spoken, it feels like you've taken further steps along that journey, whereas... That's not true of, of every institution that did some digital experiments through COVID for a variety of completely legitimate reasons. For folks that are working in organizations that are grappling with this idea of what their digital work could look like, should look like, how to work with artists, how to find these artists, you know, do you have any, any words of wisdom based on the experience you've had over the past three or four years at the Opera House? I don't know that programming for this area is any different to programming for any other. You need to be connected into the community of practice that is both local and international, which is true of, of anybody you know who is um, programming or curating. I mean, I think you know the slight latitude that I have that perhaps some other areas don't have is that you know one of the joys of curating is to be able to put two or more things together that maybe have never come together before obviously you know and, and and to create to see that collision now yes you can do that in other art forms but there does seem to be more opportunity within this space to be able to conjoin things that that otherwise have seemed you know have, have never come together perhaps in that configuration before and that's and i really you know appreciate it and enjoy that aspect of it so yes i don't think it is any more difficult but like Maybe the flip side to that is because of that multitude of opportunity and that it could go in so many different directions, you know, that does give us you know, a pause for thought now and again in terms of which of these multitudes of directions do we run in. But I think there was two things that, you know, sort of keep a lid on the anxiety, which is that change is a constant, you know. So no matter which one you choose, it is not a definitive answer and the paradigm will change irrespective of which direction you run in. And once you kind of embrace that, and particularly if you're kind of moving with that kind of test and learn semi-prototype 
mentality, then nothing you do is invalid because everything is a is an experiment essentially. You know, so having that idea that you know change is a constant, you're never going to get a definitive realization of whatever it is that you're trying to achieve. That it's always going to be not that it's compromised, but it's always going in a direction that you didn't expect, which is great. You know, which is part of the joy again of it. So yeah, so not wanting to try and move the work towards a predefined answer or a predefined solution, actually kind of trying to avoid that entirely is what gives it its potency. And look, the other part, to be real, is that some of the challenges that we faced when we last spoke still exist and have actually been, I think, exacerbated. And that is that, you know, the Opera House is now not quite performing at pre-pandemic levels, but we're certainly closer to that than we were in the other direction. And that has got a lot to do with international tourism returning to Australia as much as anything else. There's lots of great, fascinating work being done in Australia around you know, audience responses, audience engagement post-pandemic. The Australia Council for the Arts, now called Creative Australia, just released one last week, which the National Audience Participation Survey, which is a terrific read um, that really talks about some very nuanced responses to arts attendance. Anyway, but, you know, we're performing at high capacity and, you know, we are somewhat unusual perhaps insofar as well not, not unusual but you know we, we we sit within we're a performing arts center yes there's a commissioning and producing arm but that represents about 50 percent of what you see on stage and so therefore it's high turnover high box office target and so when Stu comes along with his weird ass project about ai and he wants to do it in this space over here that's never been done before and he wants to do this way and contract artists in a way that's never been contracted before then you know it's understandable that people are like please enough already i've got a million other things on my plate that i need to worry about because this is a major performing arts institution that has seven venues and we operate 364 nights a year so i understand where we sit in terms of prioritization but also in marketing because you know like marketing is so driven by the need to put bums on seats and get your your, your ticket in return that when i say can you please put my weird thing into our channels i can understand the difficulty and I can understand some of the reticence in doing so because you know we've got to prioritize so I don't think a lot of that has actually changed dramatically my relationship to that has changed a lot you know I'm sort of it's not that I'm not worried about engagement and views but I'm less worried about it I think than in, I mean you know for people who didn't listen to the last podcast like before I got into programming I was in marketing and so my head was still very much in that mindset and I've become less not at all driven by that and I have sort of made a bit more peace with where we sit within the prioritization and therefore what views or what engagement we could reasonably hope to engender because of our relationship to the rest of the institution. That's a really, that's a really, that's a daily meditation in terms of, you know, yeah, making peace with your relationship to the institution. And because, you know, I'm a, you know, contrary, difficult agitator often and I've tried and I'm, you know now perhaps my learning of over these last two years is to how do I maintain that mentality whilst at the same time not pissing people off who are just trying to do their jobs <laughs> that's the daily challenge and on that point of existential <laughs> calm I think we'll finish thank you so much Stuart thanks Ash much appreciated thank you And that is everything for today. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of the podcast, sign up for the newsletter and find out about our events on our website, thedigital.works. You can also find us on LinkedIn now that Twitter is a total garbage fire. Our theme tune is Vienna Beat by Blue Dot Sessions. And last but not least, thanks to Mark Cotton for his editing support on this episode. See you again soon.